You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, it's one of those books, it's in the middle of your Old Testament, before the Psalms, before Job, and it's after Chronicles. So if you're looking for that, you can also, if you're using your phone, you can kind of just pull it up and look for the one that says Nehemiah. You can use that index in the front of your Bible, whatever you got to do, get to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8 will also have all the words for you up here on the screen, so you can follow along up here. But our text this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that had been made for that purpose. And beside him stood a lot of people with really difficult to pronounce names. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people answered him, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, some other people with difficult to pronounce names. The Levites helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, And Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that this morning you would give us understanding. Just as we read that these uh, people in that day, they read the word, and then they received uh, explanation and understanding. Lord, would you give us insight that we might understand your word, that we might understand what it means for the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Lord, that might be true in our lives, that we might take hold of this hope which gives us joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are currently in the season of Advent. Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. It comes from a Latin phrase which means the coming of the Lord. And that's what we remember during Advent. We remember the Lord's coming, the first coming at Christmas, but we don't stop there. We also at Advent time, we look forward to when the Lord will come again according to his promise and he will set all that is right or set all that is wrong in the world. He will set a right. And we look forward to that here at Advent time. And so for Advent, we are doing a series for the month of December called Joy to the World, in which we are looking at different ways in which the gospel brings joy into our lives, joy that is unshakable, that nothing and no one can ever take away from us. The title of today's message is The Joy of the Lord is Your Strength, and it comes from this passage here in Nehemiah where we read the story, which we just read. And so today we're going to consider what this phrase meant for them and what this phrase means for us and for our lives today and as we move forward. 
Here's what we see in this chapter. Three things for our little outline here. Three things. Number one, what is the joy of the Lord? Let's define what we're talking about. Secondly, how do we get the joy of the Lord? And thirdly, what kind of strength does it give us? So what is the joy of the Lord? How do we get it? And what kind of strength does it give us? So what is the joy of the Lord? You know, I'll tell you this. If you show me a human being who has breath in their lungs, I will show you a person who longs to be happy. If you show me a person who has a beating heart, I will show you a person who desires to have joy. See, joy is something that all of us want. And the pursuit of happiness, this famous phrase, right? But think about this. The pursuit of happiness is really what is behind everything that everyone does. Every single thing that we do. It's the reason why people get married. In fact, it's the reason why some people who are married get divorced. It's the pursuit of happiness. It's the reason why some people pursue certain careers or make major life decisions. That's what's behind it. It's this pursuit of happiness because they believe that in some way, in one way or another, those decisions that they make will lead to happiness or to joy. You know, even people think about this. Some people say, oh, well, you know, that's not what drives me. I'm a very selfless person. I don't think about myself. Or what about, you know, these people who go and they, they make great sacrifices and do, other, do things for other people? What about them? Well, again, the reason they do those things is because they believe that it will bring them joy to bring joy to other people. So at the end of the day, it's still about joy. Even think about this. People who do Things that we would say are bad, right? Say so lie, cheat, and steal. Why do they do those things? People, let's say people who commit adultery. We're talking about sin, right? Why do those people do those things? Because in some way they believe that those things will give them joy. Now maybe you'd say, well, okay, well, we say everybody's motivated by joy. Well, what about people who are motivated by fear? Well, again, what are they afraid of? What are they avoiding? You may say everything they do is because they're afraid of, of this or maybe they don't do things because they're afraid. But even again, what is that fear of? It's the fear that something bad will happen, something that is unpleasant, pain or loss or failure. And at the end of the day, it still comes back to the same thing, the desire for joy. The reason they fear things is because they fear that those things will take away their joy and they will not be joyful. And so, so many of us, right, we spend our lives chasing after a sense of joy. And again, I want to tell you, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to want to be joyful. It's built into us by God. But we seek after it in lots of different ways, right? It starts with chasing after boys and chasing after girls. It, it goes on to chasing after positions in your career by chasing after achievements and accomplishes, accomplishments, things that you can look to and you can say, if only I had that, then I would have joy. Then I would be happy. See, as, as human beings, we have this inbuilt desire, this hunger for joy that drives everything that we do. And here in this text, we read about a certain kind of joy, a certain kind of joy, and it's called the joy of the Lord. So what is the joy of the Lord? What differentiates it? Well, what it means, it literally means the joy of the Lord. I mean, just put that phrase in a different way. It's the Lord's joy. That's what the joy of the Lord is. It's the Lord's joy, the joy that the Lord God has in and of himself. It's the joy that he has. And here's what's so incredible. God has joy, right? We talked about that last week as well, how joy is an attribute of God. He has this perfect, pure, complete joy. And here's what's so amazing and incredible, that he wants his joy to be your joy. He wants to give you his joy. He wants uh, that joy that he has to be your joy as well. See, the joy of the Lord is the Lord's joy, which he wants to give to you so that 
his joy might be your joy so that you would have the joy that he has. The joy of the Lord is, is not the kind of joy that you can create for yourself or that we can create for each other. It is joy that comes from him and through him. And apparently this joy is so strong, we learn here in our text, that it gives us strength to face even the most difficult of circumstances, strength to face anything that this life brings our way. Let me just give you a little context for those of you who are like, I don't know anything about the book of Nehemiah. Let me just give you a little bit of context and background so you can understand what's going on here in the book of Nehemiah and specifically here in chapter 8. So Nehemiah is one of the last books of the Old Testament that was written, one of the last ones to be written chronologically. It's been, by this point, it's been a thousand years since Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and into, um, into the wilderness. It's been several hundred years since King David and King Solomon ruled over Israel during that golden age in Israel's history. And over the last several hundred years since David and since Solomon, a lot of things have gone wrong. Things have gone ways which they shouldn't have, right? They, they've gone wrong. There was a civil war to begin with. That caused the nation of Israel to split into two kingdoms. You had Israel in the north, is what it was called, and then you had the kingdom of Judah in the south. That's where Jerusalem was. It was in the southern kingdom in Judah. So there's a civil war. The nation was divided. And then during that time, the people of Israel drifted away from God spiritually. They began to worship other gods, pagan gods, which represented money, sex, power and success. They began chasing after these things and in their pursuit of these things, they even degraded themselves to doing despicable things. Things which even you and I would look at and we'd say, that is beyond what's even comprehensible. One of, one of the things they did, they began to worship the gods of the surrounding countries, including the detestable god Molech. Molech was the god of success and the way that you worship Molech was by literally sacrificing a child onto an altar made of brass that was burning hot. You would sacrifice your own children on literally on the altar of success. We use that now in metaphoric terms. They did it literally in those days. And so God looked at these things they did. He was grieved to the heart. He said, I can't just let this go on. And so you, you see this. Here are the covenant people of God, the special chosen people of God, and they're out doing these terrible things. They've turned their backs on God. They're, they're running after all kinds of stuff. What does God do? Does he just let them go? Does he just say, all right, fine. If you guys don't want me, then, then that's fine. You guys just go do your thing. No, not at all. He pursued them. He went after them. He chased them down. You know, sometimes I've heard people say this phrase. They'll say, hey, you know, God is a perfect gentleman. So like if he, he offers you the gospel and if you're like, thanks but no thanks, and he's like, all right, cool, I'm just going to move on. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, they say, well, you know, God will respect your decision. Well, I mean, I don't really see that. What I see is this, God pursuing people. I see like the apostle Paul walking away from God and God chasing him down and knocking him down to the ground and making him blind, right? Like doing everything possible to pursue people because he loves them that much. And that's what he did with his people Israel. They went off in another direction. He didn't just let them go. He went after them. He pursued them. One of the ways he did that was by sending prophets to speak to them and call them back to him and warn them of what will happen if they continue down this path that they're on. By the way, our next series, starting in January, is going to be a look at the prophets. We're going to be looking at some of the Old Testament prophets. 
Now, when that didn't have its effect, right, when the people still did not turn back to him, even when the prophets warned them and told them, God said, okay, look, I'm going to take it a little bit further because I'm literally willing to do anything and everything that it takes in order to get your attention, to get you to wake up and get you to come back to me. And so here's what happened. First, God allowed the Assyrian Empire to attack and take over the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, many of us, we're kind of like the Israelites. When things are going well in our lives, there can be this tendency for us to drift, to drift away from God and, and to drift away from his calling on our lives. But when there's a crisis, that gets us back on our knees. That gets us praying again and seeking God and turning to God. And it gets us seeking him again. And so God literally says to these people, hey, if that's what it takes, if you only turn to me when you have a crisis, well, then so be it. I'll give you a crisis. It's worth it to me to give you a crisis if that's what it takes to wake you up and to get you seeking me again. So the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom of Israel. A little while later, God allowed the same thing to happen in the southern kingdom, except this time it was the Babylonians came and they took over. They conquered southern Israel, the kingdom of Judah. And not only did they take it over, they sacked the city of Jerusalem. They tore down its wall. They tore down the temple itself. They, they razed the city. They left it as just a pile of rubble. And they took all the people from the city, almost like prisoners of war. They took them as exiles and they took them to Babylon. And this was a major wake-up call because you got to understand, the people had always thought, okay, God is going to protect us because we're his special people. But, but beyond that, especially the city of Jerusalem, I mean, God would never let anything happen to the city of Jerusalem, and he would especially never let anything happen to the temple, except he did. And the Babylonians took the people into captivity and carried them off into Babylon, and that is what it took to get the people's attention. Living in captivity in Babylon, it was very hard, as you can imagine, for the people of Israel. But let me tell you this. It was also very good for them. Let me tell you about some of the benefits that happened to the people of Israel because of the Babylonian captivity. During the time in Babylon, the, the major thing that happened is that the Jewish people kind of recovered their identity as the people of God. They turned back to God in their hearts and recovered their identity, who God had called them to be. These people who were to know him and to reveal him to the world. The second thing that was really good that happened during the Babylonian captivity is that the nation of Israel, the divided nation, was actually reunited. Did you know that? See, here's what happened. That Babylon not only took over Israel and Judah, they also took over Assyria. So remember all those exiles from the north who were up in Assyria? Well, Babylon took over them, and guess what? They all got reunited in the Babylonian captivity. And so this nation, which had been divided for so long, no longer is there a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now the nation is one again. They're one people once again. And how many times is that true in our lives, right? That there are grudges we hold, but when we go through times of hardship, man, it really puts a lot of things in perspective. We tend to see these, these things that we, were so important to us in the past. It becomes in perspective. We just see it, okay, it's going to be, we'll just let it be water under the bridge. We'll let go of our past grievances and grudges and divisions because of this time of trial. So that's the other thing. But here's the third thing that happened. During the time in Babylon, that's when the system of synagogues developed. Now, now maybe you've noticed that, that if you read the Old Testament, it never talks about synagogues. And you're like, well, then I get to the time of Jesus, and Jesus is going to synagogues. So when did synagogues come about? Here's when they came about. They came about during the Babylonian captivity. 
And the Jewish people began meeting together. They didn't have a temple. So they began meeting together in these smaller gatherings as congregations where they would gather to pray and they would study the Bible, the Old Testament, and they would have a teacher called a rabbi who would be an expert. He was an expert in the Bible and he would help them to understand the, the scriptures and apply it to their lives. And so during the exile, the people began regularly gathering to study God's word in a way that they hadn't done before. So these were all very good things that happened as a result of the exile. So as God removed his hand of protection and he allowed these things, we can even say these bad things to happen to the people of Israel. He allowed them to be conquered. He allowed them to be carried off into exile, into captivity. Those things weren't fun. They weren't easy. They were absolutely painful and hard. But in the end, they were the best thing that ever happened to these people because it caused them to turn back to God. It caused them to be reunited as a people. It caused them to seek God and study his word in a way they hadn't done before. And I wonder how many of you, you can relate to that. There are things that have happened in your life, or maybe there are things that are happening in your life right now, and you need this perspective, right? They're difficult. They're hard. You would have never chosen to go through this if you could choose. But looking back on it, what you say now or what you will say in the future is, you know, honestly, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. You know, there's a woman named Joni Erickson Tata, and she was 19 years old, and, and what happened is she was at a lake with some friends, 19 years old, perfect health, having a great time. They're jumping in the water. She jumps off a dock, does a dive into the lake, hits her head on a rock beneath the water's surface, and became paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life. She's a Christian, and this injury has had such a profound uh, effect on her life, as you can imagine. But here's what she now says, and she says it very often. What she says is this, I would have never chosen that for myself. And I would never wish it on anybody else. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me. See, because as a result of it, it caused her to draw closer to God. And it's opened so many doors for her to minister to other people in Jesus' name. And she's able to look back now and say, I would have never chosen that. And I would never wish that on anybody else. But it is the best thing that ever happened to me. See, that was the case with God's people too, when they were conquered and carried into exile. At the time, they wondered, of course, they cried out, God, where are you? Why are you letting this happen to us? Don't you love us? If you love us, why would you let this happen to us? But in the end, we see now in retrospect, this was the best thing that ever happened to them. And we need to remember that in the midst of the things that we're going through. When you get laid off from that job, when that relationship ends, when you get that diagnosis that you were so afraid of, sometimes you see the things that we fear most can often end up being the best things that ever happened to us because of God's loving providence in our lives. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly how to get you there. And so we trust in him and we follow him even in the midst of dark and difficult and confusing times and those difficult moments. But here's what happened. After many years in exile in Babylon, the Babylonian empire itself was conquered by another empire. I know this is kind of, hopefully you're tracking with me on who's conquering who, but the Babylonians got conquered by the Persians. And so there's a new, you know, emperor in town. And so God put it, puts it on the heart then after the Persians take over and, and defeat the Babylonians, God puts it on the heart of a guy named Nehemiah. 
to approach the Persian emperor, a guy named Cyrus, and to ask him for permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild this broken down city and to repopulate it, to to take the Jewish exiles back to their homeland. And surprisingly, Cyrus says yes. And so Nehemiah leads this movement, this movement of leading the exiles back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the city. One of the first things they need to do when they get there is they need to rebuild the wall around the city, this wall which has been destroyed for about 120 years or so because they need to rebuild the walls. They need to rebuild the houses. You see there are groups of roaming marauders and and thieves out in the countryside. The countryside was a dangerous place to be. And so if you wanted to be safe, if you want to have a safe place for families and children to live, you needed a wall to protect your city. So that's the first thing they can do. They need to do is rebuild this wall, and then they can rebuild houses, and then eventually the temple. But as they attempt to rebuild this wall, we read through the book of Nehemiah, they face this constant opposition, this constant danger. It wasn't easy. It wasn't for the faint of heart. I mean, imagine taking your kids to live in a bombed-out, war-torn city a city that's been a rubble heap for over a hundred years. And you set up your tent. Can you imagine clearing away some rubble and setting your tent up in the midst of this broken down city and then putting your kids to sleep at night in that tent? You see, again, there are bands of thieves and robbers kind of roaming around. The people who want to fight you, want to rob you. Why in the world would you move your family to a place like that? Why would in the world would anybody go to a place like that? Like who in their right mind would, would bring children to a place like this. And you've got to wonder, if it was this hard, if it was this dangerous, then why bother trying to rebuild this city in the first place? Why not just go somewhere else where it's safer? Why not just go and start a new city somewhere else from scratch? That would be easier than rebuilding this pile of rubble. It would sure be a lot less dangerous. The reason why they did this, why it had to be this city in this place, is because they understood that this city represented something. See, Jerusalem represented something. It wasn't just any old city. It represented something. It represented a vision of the way that things ought to be and the way that things will be by the promises of God. You see, this city is the city where God came and dwelt among his people. It represented a vision for the way that things should be, the way that things will be one day according to God's promise. The name Jerusalem, it literally means the city of peace. But that word shalom, the city of shalom, it means more than just peace. It means harmony. It means the way that things are meant to be. See, Jerusalem represented a vision of the way that things ought to be, even if it's not the way that they are. The way that things indeed will be one day, according to God's promise and by God's grace, when people will dwell in the presence of God and there will be no more tears and no more violence and no more hatred and no more evil forever. And the people of God will dwell with God in perfect peace and there will be perfect joy. That is what Jerusalem represented. That is the hope the vision that Jerusalem represented. Jerusalem was called in the scriptures by the people. It was called the joy of all the earth. That's what Jerusalem was called. And that because of what it represented. In fact, before these exiles returned to Jerusalem, we read in Psalm 137. If you, if you listen to reggae music, you know these lyrics, right? Like it tells us that the people, when they were still in exile, they sat down by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and there we wept as we remembered Zion. And they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And here's what they say in that that psalm about Jerusalem. It says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, 
Let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. You see, the highest joy of the people of God was this vision of the city of God. This vision of a city where God would make his dwelling place together with his people. And things would finally be right and they would experience ultimate and true joy forever. That's what the joy of the Lord is. It's God's joy that he wants to give to his people. It's the joy, let's put it in our terminology, it's the joy which comes from the hope of the gospel. That's what the joy of the Lord is. It's the joy which comes from the hope of the gospel. Had a good friend call me this week. Uh, He told me that his dad is in the hospital and things are not looking good. And and as I talked with my friend and just kind of listened to him, and talked with him, here's, here's what we talked about, how the, the hope that we have because of the gospel is the thing, the only thing which can give us strength to go through these kinds of things. That because of what Jesus did, we have the hope of heaven, the true city of God that our hearts long for, which Jerusalem was just a picture of, an envisioning of, and that hope in the gospel gives us joy even in the face of the most difficult things that this life brings our way. That joy gives us the strength that we need to go on and to carry on and to do things well as we do them. See, the joy of the Lord is God's joy that he wants to give you. And the joy, this joy, is the joy which is the result of having hope. It's the joy which is the result of having hope. So that gets to the next question, how do we get it? And that's what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Here's the answer. How do we get this joy? Here's the answer we see. The way we get this joy is by understanding and responding to the word of God. By understanding and responding to the word of God. Where we pick up the story here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah and the people, they have just completed the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah has been appointed governor. Things are really starting to come together and stabilize. If you read the whole book of Nehemiah, here's one thing you'll notice. That there are huge chunks of the book which are taken up with lists of names. Now, how many of you, that's like your favorite genre of Bible reading? Like as you're doing your Bible reading plan, you just get really excited when you get to the books of names, right? It's kind of like names of people you can't pronounce who you've never met. It's kind of like going to a foreign country and pulling out the phone book and just reading it out loud. You don't know how these are supposed to be pronounced, and you don't know who any of these people are. That's about how interesting it is. These names are the names of the people who had residence there in Jerusalem, the returned exiles who lived there in Jerusalem. Right before chapter 8 is chapter 7, and chapter 7 is really a list of a bunch of names of people who lived in Jerusalem. Maybe you say, okay, fine, why are you telling me this? There's a reason. I'm going to tell you in just a minute. You're going to see it in just a minute. So just store that aside. Put that on the shelf in your mind. There's a reason for these names, these long, boring lists of names of people who inhabit the city. But let's go on. Here in chapter 8, something interesting happens. Verse 1, it says, All the people gathered together, all the people living in Jerusalem, they gathered together in the square in front of the water gate. Chapter 7 tells us there were about 50,000 people living in the city in this time. So imagine 50,000 people gathered together in a square. Think of it like New York City, Times Square on New Year's Eve. That's what we're talking about, standing room only. We're talking about like Civic Center Park in Denver when the Broncos win the Super Bowl. Except these people aren't gathered to watch the ball drop. These people aren't gathered for a parade. These people are gathered to listen to somebody read a book. It says in verse 1 that they gathered as one man. That means they had one singular desire, the desire to hear from God. They wanted to know God's will for their lives. 
Remember, for these people, keep this in mind, the Bible, the book that they are talking about, right? The, the first five books of Moses, they were already a thousand years old. This was already an ancient book. You know, how, how strange is it in a way that we turn to this ancient book to give us instruction about who we are and about who God is and about how life is to be lived. But understand, these people at that time, they did the same thing. They turned to this ancient book, which for them was already ancient at that time. They desire to hear from God. So where do they turn? They turn to the book, God's written word. Friends, let me tell you this. The same is true for us today. If you want God to speak to you, if you want to hear his voice, if you want to know him, if you want to know his will for your life, then come to his book, open up his written word. And I pray that God would give us a hunger like we see here in the people in Nehemiah chapter eight, a hunger where they gather together and they say, bring out the book. They wanna hear God speak. They wanna seek him through his word. So these 50,000 people, they gather together to listen to the word of God being read out loud. And they tell Ezra, the scribe and the priest, bring out the book, the book of the law of Moses, those first five books of the Old Testament. That's what the book of the law of Moses is. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It says in verses two and three that Ezra read it. He stood on a wooden platform that had been prepared just for this purpose. And he opened the book of the law and he began to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it says that he read from early morning until midday, 6 a.m. until noon. Reading, and not just reading, we're going to see also explaining. Now, sometimes I've heard, uh, you know, I'll be at like a conference or a church service, and I'll hear like the pastor or the worship leader, and they'll be like, you know what we're doing here? This is just a picture of heaven. Like in heaven, we're just going to do this forever. And I'm like, bro, I can't take like, I don't know if I could do that forever. Like, I like church and stuff, obviously, but I don't know if I could do that forever, right? Like, I sure hope heaven is better than this. I, I know you do too, right? Uh, but six hours is a long time, right? That's a long time to be studying the word. But, but I love this. It says in verse 3 that the people listened attentively. It says in verse 5 and 6 that when Ezra began to read, before he started, he prayed, he blessed the Lord. And what did the people do? They said, amen, amen. By the way, when you repeat things in Hebrew culture, that's extreme emphasis. It's emotion. So when you see Jesus, you know, he repeats things. That's what it's about. It's emphasis. It's emotion. It says that the people raised their hands to the sky and they bowed their faces to the ground. Just imagine 50,000 people, hands to the sky, faces towards the ground, saying amen and amen, standing as the word of God is read aloud. Verse 7, we read this, that Ezra didn't only read just, he didn't just straight read the text, but it tells us that he sent the Levites out into the people, amongst these people. Remember, 50,000 people. So he sends these people out. And what's their job? It's to help people understand what he's reading, to give them the clear meaning, the clear sense of the scriptures. So Ezra would read a little bit. Then the Levites would be out amongst the people, and they would explain to them what it meant so that the people could understand. By the way, that's what we try to do here at Whitefields. That's as simple as it is. We want to read the text. We want to expound the text. We want to help you understand it and apply it to your life. And so as Ezra is reading from the book of the law, the Levites, right, they're explaining it to the people. And it says in verse 9 that something happened. What happened is the people began to cry. They began to weep. See, here's the thing. When you read the Bible, you come to quickly find out 
that there's some bad news in it. And the bad news is this, that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of God's standards. You have failed to keep all of God's commands. See, Jesus said that the whole law can be summed up in this, in two commandments. The whole law can be summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said on those two commandments, that's, that sums up the entire law. And I'll tell you this, there's not a single one of us who has kept those two commandments completely, fully, every day of our lives. I certainly haven't. I fail to keep those commandments every day. To love the Lord with all that I am every moment of every day, I fail at that every single day. To love other people the way that I love myself, I'm really good at loving myself, not as good at loving other people. My guess is that you're similar. And the Bible says very clearly, in case there was any doubt, it says it just straight up, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if that's not bad enough, I've got even worse news for you. I know you're excited for that, right? Like, that's why I came here today. Let me have it, right? No, I've got worse news for you. Uh, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So it's not just that you're a sinner. It's that as a sinner, there are repercussions of that. There are things that will happen as a result of that. And that is death, separation from God, not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death. Now, that's really bad news. You can understand why these people, as they came to understand this, tears started to roll down their eyes. They started to weep as they heard God's laws. They were confronted with their failures, with their shortcomings. They were confronted with the consequences of their sin, that, that they had brought a curse upon themselves by the things they had done, and there was absolutely nothing they could do about it. Tears began to trickle down their faces, and they wept. It was an interesting thing that Jesus said, you know, the, the, maybe the most famous uh, speech that Jesus gave was called the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins with what we call the Beatitudes, which oddly enough means the happy sayings. But check out how those happy sayings begin. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he went on, he said, blessed are those who weep for they shall be comforted. Now that's kind of, a, these are just kind of weird things to say, right? Like if you don't understand what they mean. What does that even mean? Well, here's what Jesus is saying. The reason that the poor in spirit are blessed is because the first step towards receiving the kingdom of heaven, the first step is recognizing that you are spiritually poor, that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you have nothing to put on the table, nothing to offer. You are spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are you if you realize that that is the first step towards receiving the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes, you know what the next step is? Blessed are you if having realized that you are spiritually poor, that you're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are you if you realize that and you weep over that, that it causes you grief. If you weep over your sin and the consequences of your sin, when you get to the point where you are broken over it, Jesus says, that's it. That's money. That's what we're talking about. Now we're cooking with fire, right? Because, man, that, that's where it begins. Because now, when you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt, when you weep over that, man, you are ready. You are ready to receive the good news of the gospel. Let me explain it to you like this. Look, if I come up to you and I say, hey, guess what? I've got some great news for you. And you're like, let me have it. I love good news. And I'm like, okay, here's the good news. God sent his son into this world to die for your sins so you could be saved. Now you might say, well, look, I'm sure there are some people out there who really need that and that'll be really helpful for them. You know, like people who are kind of weak 
emotionally or mentally or, or like criminals, I'm sure that that's really helpful for them to have that kind of thing. But I don't think I need that. I'm pretty, pretty good, right? Like I get my kids to school on time and I pay my bills. I'm a pretty decent guy. I've got some neighbors. Maybe they could use that, but not me. See, unless you understand the depth of your sin, you will not be thrilled by the good news of the gospel. It's kind of like this. Imagine this. Imagine if your house was on fire. I, I see that your house is on fire and I come speeding up and I just like, you know, stomp on the brakes and I skid to a stop in front of your house and you and all your family, you're all out on the front lawn just watching the house burn. You're all safe. You're, ju you're doing just fine. You're going to be fine. And then I come up to you and I say, guys, let me show you how much I love you. And then I run into that house and I just die in a flaming inferno. He would say, wow, that was uh, kind of weird and completely unnecessary. Like, what a tragedy. Why would that person do that for me? The thing you wouldn't feel is, wow, that guy loved me. You'd be like, I don't know what I just saw. He just ran in there and died for absolutely no reason. We're all fine. Now, if on the other hand, your house is on fire and you're not outside on the lawn, you and your family, right? You are inside the house. And I run in there through those flames because I love you and I save your life. But in the process, I lose my own. What would you say? You would say, truly, he loved us. You see, in order for the gospel to make any sense at all, we need to understand that we're not the people standing on the lawn watching the house burn. We're the people inside the house who absolutely need to be rescued, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. See, that's what happened here in Nehemiah chapter 8. As these people heard the book of the law being read, as they understood what it meant, they were cut to the heart. And something interesting happens now in verses 10, 11, and 12. Ezra and the Levites come to the people, and they say, hey, Today is not a day of mourning. Today is not a day to weep. Today is a day to rejoice. For today is a day that is holy unto the Lord. So let us eat the fat. Let us drink sweet wine and celebrate. And it says in verse 12 that these people who had been weeping, they went away that day rejoicing because it says there at the end of that verse, because they had understood better the words that were declared to them. You see, in the book of the law, yes, we are confronted with our failures and our shortcomings and our sins. But that's not all we're confronted with. Do you know that, friends? That in God's book, in the, in the book of the law, yes, we see our sin, but that's not all we see. We also see our Savior. You see, these people, they heard about their sin, but that's not all they heard. They heard the good news about God's mercy and God's grace towards his people. They didn't get the full picture, but what they saw was that God cared about his people. He provided ways for them to be cleansed of their sins, for them to be forgiven. He provided ways for their broken relationship with him to be restored. They would have read passages like Genesis chapter 22, where God provided a lamb to die and be sacrificed in place of Isaac so that Isaac could live. They would have read about the Exodus, when God provided the Passover lamb for each family and as the blood of the lamb was shed and applied to their household, it protected the people and death and judgment passed over them. They would have read in Leviticus about the day of atonement when God appointed that a single animal would die for the sins of the whole nation. And of course, there was this promise at the very beginning of the book in Genesis chapter 3 that one day there would be a child who would come into this world 
and he would be the one to defeat evil, to crush the head of Satan, and to do away with the curse of sin and death once and for all. You see, when you hear God's word read and taught, it does more than just reveal your sins. It reveals your Savior. And God's good message for you, God's good news for you, is that sin and death will not have the final word in your life. Amen? Sin and death will not have the final word. That his grace and his mercy get the final word. The joy of the Lord comes from receiving God's grace. They didn't get the whole picture in their day. They didn't didn't see how it was all going to work out. But we do. We live on this side of Christmas. We live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of the resurrection. We know who this Savior is. We know what he has done to save us. And so while it is important for us to weep over our sin, we cannot stay there. We don't stay there. Instead, we rejoice in the good news of what Jesus has done for us. These people were told to celebrate with a feast. And friends, do you know that that day is coming when everything that Jerusalem pointed to will be a reality? Do you know that that day is coming when we will dwell in God's city, in the new Jerusalem, the Bible calls it, where we will dwell together with God in perfect security and in fullness of joy? Do you know that how the Bible describes heaven? It doesn't describe it as a super long church service that never ends. You know how it describes it? As a feast. It describes it as a feast where we will eat the fat and drink sweet wine and our joy will be full. Our joy that we have now, the joy that we experience now, is based on that expectation. It's based on that hope. The joy of the Lord that you can have right now is the joy of knowing that your name is written in God's book. That you are a citizen of that new city. Remember how we talked about names earlier and I told you to just store that away in your mind? Those lists of names, they're so boring to read and you don't know who any of those people are. Well, I promise you that there is coming a day when the names will be read from God's book for those who will enter into his city and you will not be bored at all. You'll be listening attentively for your name, for your friends' names, and you will rejoice with joy unspeakable when you hear those names read aloud from the book of life. And so how do we get that joy, that joy of the Lord? Well, let me tell you this. Here's how. You get it by understanding and responding to the word of God. Understanding and responding to the word of God. You get it by recognizing your sin and embracing the good news of what Jesus Christ did for you in order to save you. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And he overcame death by rising again. Because of what he did, you can be forgiven. You can be restored to right relationship with God. And your name can be written in the book of life, that list of those who have citizenship in God's eternal city, the new Jerusalem. And one last point, and this will be really short. What kind of strength does this give us? For these guys in Nehemiah's day, it gave them the strength to keep going, even in the face of difficulty and danger. I don't know what each of you are going through today as you sit here, but I do believe that the joy of the Lord can give you the strength that you need to get through it, and not just get through it, but get through it well. See, this joy of knowing that your name is written in God's book, that puts everything else in perspective. The joys of this life, we understand in perspective that they are only a preview, only a taste of what is to come, the fullness we haven't even experienced yet. It puts all of your hardships in perspective because you remember that the hardships and pains of this life are temporary. They won't last forever. Knowing that your name is written in God's book gives you the strength to face the things that you fear most in this life when you get that phone call you didn't want to get 
or when your dreams and your ambitions fail or die. It's the strength which comes from having hope. Maybe there's some of you today who need strength to face whatever it is that's going on in your life right now. May the joy of the Lord give you that strength that you need as you leave this place today. The joy of knowing that you are loved by God, the joy of knowing that you are accepted by God, the joy of knowing that he has prepared a place for you and your name is written in his book and one day everything we read about here will be absolutely reality. Knowing that no, matters what's, no matter what's going on in your life right now, the best is yet to come because there is a hope that goes beyond your present circumstances. I encourage you today, tap in, dig deep, take hold of the hope of the gospel and choose to rejoice and may the joy of the Lord be your strength. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this hope that we have in you, this hope which gives us joy. And Lord, we too look forward to that city, the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, the city where we will dwell together with you and feast with you for eternity. And our joy will be full because you will have given us your joy in perfect fullness. So Lord, we look forward to that. And I pray for everybody in here today, Lord. And I pray especially if there's anybody who says, you know, I don't know that my name is written in that book. Lord, I pray that today would be the day when they say, okay, whatever's been holding me back, I'm, I'm done. I'm done resisting, and I take hold of, I embrace the gospel, what you did for me, Jesus, your rescue of me, I embrace it by faith, and I trust in it. No longer do I trust in myself, but I trust in you. And Lord, I pray for all of us, those of us who need strength, Lord, would you give us the strength which comes from having the hope of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.